Hello and welcome to In the Isles, the movie and TV podcast that is open. No, we're closed. No, we're open again. No, we are. We are definitely closed. This week, we'll talk about what we've been watching, including nuns, Danish folklore and murder again. Got a little bit of real news. And for conflicts of interest, we'll talk about our most underrated films of the 90s. And our main review is the Apple original film, Wolf Walkers. Because there was nothing else. Doesn't mean it's a bad thing. Well, stay tuned. Stay tuned. I've no shame. I'm doing it again. Please don't forget, if you want to support this podcast, please like us on Facebook. Subscribe to the podcast. Give us five stars on Apple. Do what you can to get us up the podcast charts. If you want to get in touch with us, you can do so at In The Isles Podcast, or you can reach out to us on Instagram, I believe, James. Yes, In The Isles Podcast. Nice. Let's move on. So in the absence of anything to watch this week, because there really wasn't a lot, I, I, I just started reminiscing about film in general and what it means to me. And somehow this little anecdote popped into my head. Do you remember when we went watching Nine Songs at the cinema? Nine Songs, by the way, being the film that concerns non-simulated sex that was released in the early 2000s. Do you remember this, James? I remember we watched it at View in in oh is it is it it's not Bury, is it in Bolton it was Cineworld in Bolton yeah yeah and I don't suppose you recall I used to tell this story like weekly because I found it hilarious do you remember what happened during that trip I think I know what you're gonna say when I went when we went to buy the tickets we bought the tickets and I confirmed is this the film with the sex in it to the ticket person is that what you're thinking of yeah, so she she said to us after buying the tickets, oh, by the way, are you aware that this film contains sexually explicit material to which you enthusiastically proclaimed, yes, I am, which <laughs> is simultaneously one of my greatest film-going experiences and one of the most cringeworthy. That just popped back up into my head. I'd completely forgotten about it. That was hilarious. I think she knew that my, it was a tongue-in-cheek comment. It was an unsimulated tongue-in-cheek comment. I, I don't know if she did, but I think any hope of finding out the truth is is long gone. Maybe she's even not with us anymore. Bless her. Who knows? Anyway, sorry, that just yeah crept back into my mind and I thought I'd share it with you because it was, uh, yeah, thanks for the memory, James. It was a good one. Yeah, good times. So not being able to visit a cinema, shall we dive into what's on the box? Yes. James, you go first. What have you been watching this week? On the BBC, I've watched Black Narcissus. Narcissus. It's the name of a flower. It's a BBC slash FX co-production based on the 1939 novel on which the 1947 film is based that I've not seen. Have you seen the original from the 40s? No, I've not. It's about some English nuns going to the Himalayas to set up a convent on a hill in an old building near a village. I'll start with the positives. Gemma Artisan is really good in it. She's good. The pressure, the uncertainty, the test of faith. She plays it really well. Ashling Franciosi, who was in Game of Thrones as Lyanna Stark, I didn't recognise her, is the nun that starts to lose her mind. The progression from your bog-standard nun to frustration to your employment is at risk, you're going mad, is excellent, she's really good. Those two carried it and it's their story and maybe it was their performances that got me through the whole three episodes. However, 
the whole story is supposed to be about this simmering sexual tension that boils over and wrecks everything. But for me, it just wasn't there. I suppose the intention was to be more subtle and muted, but it's so muted that it's almost silent. They don't actually get biblical with each other, so to speak, or talk about their feelings. So you need to do a lot with shot selection, editing, sound design, performance, and lighting to get across this idea of, oh, this is so tense, or oh, they're starting to become more attracted to Mr. Dean. But it didn't happen for me. Think of when Kevin Spacey first sees Mina Savari in American Beauty as a more extreme example of how you can show, oh, there's something going on here. They're attracted to each other. Events slowly escalate within each episode, but the tension is reset at the start of episode two and three as though nothing has happened. So it feels like everyone has forgotten everything and the tension is gone. The sense of place is lacking. Maybe that's because of the budget, but the isolation within this Himalayan setting just does not come across. The lighting is quite flat and TV style, Doctor Who, BBC style. I haven't seen the 1947 version, but just looking at the first page of the Google images made me realise, yep, this is better. The cinematography in 1947 is better. But circle back to positive, Gemma Artisan is good. <laughs> yeah, I'm not going to watch that, I don't think. But I suppose that's what you, you're warning us not to. So I take your warning on board. Thanks, James. Anything else? I've watched Equinox, which is a Danish Netflix drama. Have you heard of this? Yes, I really wanted to watch it, but I haven't found my way round to it yet. Tell me it's worth it. You know what? Yeah, it is worth it. It is worth it. It's reminiscent of Dark, the... German time travel series and True Detective. It's about a woman who tries to find out what's happened to her sister who disappeared 20 years ago with 20 other high school students on the day of their graduation. I'm not going to say it's one of the best things that I've ever seen. It's not even the most memorable Danish TV program I've seen this week, which I'll get into in real news. This woman, whose name I haven't got written down, meets a series of shady, broken, traumatized characters. And as she investigates, her own trauma and mental health issues start to come out and the story focuses more on them. There are a lot of flashbacks to the events surrounding the disappearance of her sister. You see some weird cult things going on. You see so many flashbacks that it gets to the point where we're just being told what's happened via flashback without the main character uncovering the information herself, which I thought was a bit weird. What makes this different is the connection to Danish folklore about a king of rabbits and what he does when he periodically visits our realm. Now that folktale, I've since learned, is common knowledge in Denmark and some other European countries that are still under EU control. So me watching this is like watching The Passion of the Christ without knowing about the Bible. So I've missed a lot there. But I still enjoyed it. I had no idea this wasn't just a tale made up for this programme. Overall, if you like your Scandinavian noir, which I know you do, it's good. It's creepy. It looks good. The acting is good. It did keep my attention throughout the six episodes. And I wanted to know what's happened to the sister. And I think it does end satisfactorily. And I would recommend it. Okay. That's, yep. Yeah, you've pushed me over the line. I am definitely going to give that a watch. Thank you for doing due diligence for me. Anything else? That's all from me for now. What have you been watching? So it, it feels like we're centering on the dark and macabre, which is normally my job. Um, so I'm sorry to continue in that fashion. But I've been watching a lot of crime documentaries this week. 
So first off was Murder on Middle Beach on Now TV. Have you heard of this? No. I've heard of Murder on Low and High Beach, but not Middle Beach. <laughs> okay, this is a prequel. No, it's the second in the series. Doesn't matter. I don't know why I'm carrying on this joke. It's a HBO crime documentary that, as I say, it's available on Now TV. 15 minutes in, I thought, yawn. I've seen this a thousand times. I'm not that interested. However, the thing that sets this documentary apart is that it's made by the son of the murder victim, Madison Beach. And he's an aspiring film student. And for his course, he decides that he wants to make a documentary about this event in his life where his mother's been killed. After all, how can you mark somebody down on a film about your dead mum? You can't, can you? He's, he's got the grade in the bag. Quite clever, really. Anyway, he desperately wants answers to this unresolved crime and to explore, he says, who his mother really was. He he does focus on the crime angle. He might want to say it's about his mother and who she was as a person, but it, there's no focus on that, really. It's about getting to the nitty-gritty of her secrets and how everyone in the family may or may not be involved in somewhere. So it's no Dear Zachary, which if anybody's not seen that, that is a really hard-hitting, awful documentary to watch, uh, but worthwhile, I would say. So he started this documentary about seven years ago after his mother was uh, killed, and it includes quite difficult interviews with his surrounding fractured family and what appears to be in episode one a relatively open and shut case you're like it's the dad it is 100 the dad I've, I've no other questions thanks we can end this now but then you get to episode two and oh no somebody else is just as fit for murder as he was and it kind of blew my mind how there were so many motives at play and seemingly all of them were as likely as the other so that really took me aback it was quite jaw-dropping in that sense it is frustrating because I, i can't talk about it without spoiling it but that's that's just the nature of this podcast and i also liked that it added an extra level of suspense because him being involved in filming this documentary he's obviously as i say speaking to his own family and you can feel that he just doesn't trust anyone within his own family it's all that dysfunctional it's a mess but I just couldn't get enough of that. I was like, where are we going to go to next? It is only a four-parter, but I really enjoyed this, so I'd I'd recommend it because you can fly through it pretty quickly as well. Where is it set? It's in America. Okay, does sound good. I'll check that one out. What else have you been watching? I'm not going to go into depth on this because I know that we're going to dig deep on The Serpent, but I also watched 24 Hours in Police Custody, the special Black Widow. I am quite a fan of this show. Uh, it's not normally worth mentioning. It's pretty by-the-numbers crime documentary. Wouldn't ordinarily bring it up. But as this is a special, it is about a woman who her boyfriend thinks that she is cheating on him. So he leaves his iPhone at home while he goes to work and records her and witnesses a audio recording of his partner and an unnamed man discussing how to off her first husband So he then takes this to the police and that then sets in motion this whole chain of events of her being arrested and questioned and then, oh, maybe she's done this before. And you start to understand what her relationship is with her ex-husband and why she might be driven to hire a hitman to kill him. The main thing that I really, I want validation, I want you to watch this purely to tell me how seething you are by the end of it because this woman 
is the most sniveling little cretin of a human being I have ever seen. She's the most deplorable character I've ever seen on TV. She is so annoying. I've never been so incensed by somebody in my life. I was punching my couch. I just couldn't believe what a... She claims illness at every point of the arrest. Like, she's just, oh, my back. Oh, I can't. I need my medication. She's faking illness. She's a hypochondriac. It's kind of well documented in the series anyway. But, oh, my word cannot highlight my disdain for this woman. Please watch it just to tell me whether I was warranted in having that opinion or not, because I want this woman dead. Right, I'll sack off the Baywatch HD remaster marathon. And I watched this and said, what is, what is it again? 24 hours in police custody, Black Widow special. Yeah, two parts. And I will It's on, it's on what? Uh, what? Eve, uh, on 4 OD. Okay. Lastly, because let's end on, on a, a brighter note, about failed relationships. Married at First Sight, Australia, season six. My partner has been trying to get me to watch this for years. And I've just been like, no, I'm not into it. I've mocked James for watching Love Island. I can't watch Married at First Sight. Can't do it to myself. I've get I've given in, I've succumbed to it, and I can't get enough. I cannot get enough. It will breeze you through lockdown. There's gonna be like one episode every weekday for the next five weeks. Highly recommend it. Trash TV at its finest, married at first sight. Australia. What's that on? 4OD again. Knocking it out of the park this week. I don't think we've ever done. Have we done Channel 4 before? I don't think so. No, I don't. Did we do the end of the beep world? No, we didn't, did we? No. There's a first. Okay. I will watch that. I was tempted on the subject of Rails TV. I was tempted by The Circle on Netflix. Have you seen that being advertised? Yeah. I've just, I'm not saying it's not my thing um, because I like to be quite contradictory when it comes to my views of reality TV, but I haven't, (laughs) I haven't watched it yet. It looks like the most degenerate, disgusting display of dystopian nonsense ever, (laughs) but I do want to watch it. Of course you do. And so do I know that you've said that. <laughs> Should we talk about the serpent? Yes. So we discussed it in last week's episode. We've both watched it now in its entirety, the serpent. I, I'm committed to this podcast, by the way. So I, I had to stay up till 2 a.m. on a weeknight because I hadn't managed to get around to it. So I finished it last night. We were in high praise for the production value, but skeptical on the storytelling. Tell me, James, was it worth the eight hours you spent on the serpent? It was with reservations it keeps up with the style i've talked previously about miss america and the trial of the chicago seven about oh 70s aesthetic and it does do that even if for some characters it's just a haircut and big glasses so the setting and the style and the music is good it is dark and moody and there is this sense of dread looming over everything something that black narcissist doesn't have the serpent does have you do feel like Anything could happen to anyone at any time. The serpent might get you. And there's a really good scene towards the end where you're following this character and you don't know if she's going to be safe or not. And I was genuinely into it. However, Tahir Rahim, who plays the serpent, the killer, I don't think it's his fault, but he totally lacks charisma in this and it doesn't work. I don't buy him as this super charismatic, handsome guy that was bringing people back to his apartment just by being so friendly he becomes more serpentine later on which shows that he does have it in him to do it but it's it's too late and i really want to know what you think about that i just don't believe that anyone will be convinced 
to stay with him for the length of time that you see. Jenna Coleman's entire performance is looking like she has doubts about what's going on. Someone's being killed, she's got doubts. Someone's being drugged, she's got doubts. She's asked to make some tea, she's got doubts. She sees that the guy actually has a wife, oh, she's got doubts. That's all that it is. She's just looking around like she's got doubts about things, episodes. But what is she going to do about it? She she doesn't, she seems like she has no agency. And maybe that's the story, fine. But she's more than complicit in what's going on. So how does she still seem to have doubts all the time? That was, that bothered me. That bothered me. Because they show a picture of the real couple. The real woman looks like an absolute psycho. <laughs> she looks scary AF. But then you look at Jenna Coleman, she's just, oh, no, no, I'm not sure about this. So that's how I finished with it. What about you? Similar in a lot of respects. I think my initial opinion from the first three episodes when we reviewed it last week didn't change that much. But naturally, the outcome was I'm favourable on it. I like it. It's about serial killers, so I'm driven towards it. I think there is a lot of positives to be had with this programme. You've kind of hit the nail on the head with a lot of stuff already, but the visuals in particular, like you said, the portraying this place in time, I just thought they nailed everything. I couldn't have been brought into it any further. So... We mentioned it last week. The, the time hopping is very, very distracting, and there is no let up. In fact, it only gets worse as the series progresses. But I did get used to it. However, my partner listened to last week's episode, and she said she completely agrees with your comments on get all the stuff with a couple out of the way first, and then do you know what I mean? Just do it chronologically. It would have made so much more sense. And I don't think it would have lost anything because of that. I do think naturally because of the time period that is covering, there would have had to be some time hopping, but it didn't need to be as frequent as it was in this program. I am going to now like go on to quite a lot of negative stuff. And I, I will say I wholeheartedly still recommend this because I think it's a really fun ride. I, I honestly do. But other nitpicks for me. Firstly, the guy who plays Herman Nippenberg, he had like a scheduled breakdown or shouting fit every episode in the last four episodes. And I think he's a really good actor, but it just felt too over the top. And I just wanted the director to rein him in a bit because I was just like, all right, this is, this is a bit much. He's actually more terrifying than the killer with how unstable he is, which is worrying because I don't think that's what they were going for. Um, I agree with your comments on Charles Sobrajan and the actor that portrays him. I did read an interview that I'm going to butcher his actual quote, but he said it was really hard to latch onto the idea of this man who is such a slippery character who seemingly doesn't have his own sort of personality. That's a very, very, you know, rough version of what he said, but I think that's almost an excuse for why he didn't bring more to the role rather than it being something that's actual, actually true. Just don't try and latch on to the real man. Just play the character as he's written. Don't worry about what he was like in real life. Yeah, fair comment. Do your own thing. Another thing, and I will say, skip ahead to the 25-minute mark if you want to remain spoiler-free. There was a huge issue for me later on in the series. So the whole of the suspense is hinged upon him being captured. And when we finally get to it, it's all done off-screen and we jump forward in time, and then we learn via, I think it's a news broadcast in the background, that he's escaped again for the fourth time, and then he was recaptured. He couldn't be prosecuted and lived life as a free man. Th that is, I was like, what? 
that's insane. But it's just a line that is not explored. And I know that there's there's so many details to this story. And if half of this is to be believed, you're going to be talking 20 episodes to fully cover this. So I understand why they've glossed over some things. But that didn't feel like something that you can just gloss over. That was a huge moment where I thought, please explore this a bit more. I was disappointed with that as well when it gave you capture first prison time in India, I think, for a year, and then skip ahead to second life sentence in Nepal, as though these are the two events, it's in the Wikipedia article, stick them in, job done. And it's half of the last episode. And I think they could have done more. I think they could have spent less time in Thailand just killing people over and over again. Those first four episodes, you could maybe squash that down Mm. to three and then do a whole episode in the end that is, you know, India living as a free man, Nepal. I think there's a way they they could have done it. I was was shocked as well by how quickly it all wrapped up. And you didn't even get to see what Jenna Coleman was doing, which is the most famous person in it. And you see one scene of her in prison. She coughs up blood. She dies of cancer off screen, we find out in the end titles. Yeah, it did. uh, I think a lot of it towards the end did feel a bit rushed. But again, uh, I think you're right in what you said. They could have condensed a lot of that first three episodes because it was very much Taurus, drug them, kill them. Taurus, drug them, kill them. We didn't need all of it. Just put a figure to it at the end, which is something that I think they even failed to do. But maybe that's what criminal investigators failed to do also judging by some stuff that i've read in the background another thing which again i don't mean to keep saying that i referenced last week but i noted that filming had been interrupted due to covid and they had to reposition themselves in the uk in hertfordshire i think it was to finish things off massive hats off to them i did not feel that in the slightest i thought that was sublime i had no inkling whatsoever i thought everywhere that we visited had a sense of being a country in its own right, shall we say. Overall, I won't forget this series, despite some of the problems that I had with it. I think the globe trottiness of it all made it worthwhile. It, I lost count of the amount of countries that we go to and the cigarettes smoked, in all honesty. I just really enjoyed the series for all its flourish, I think I should say. It's visual flourish. As a... <clears throat> As someone with a lot of experience watching serial killer dramas, what did you think of the fact that there was no on-screen killing? Didn't bother me. I didn't even think about it until you just asked me the question, but normally I look... I'm not a go-hound as such. I just like seeing the darker bits of the human mind and, and seeing some of that on screen. But, yeah, you're right. It was quite goreless, and I didn't I didn't want for it. So, yeah, I was I was happy. Okay. I felt like because it was such a vacant performance that I wanted to see what he acts like when he's actually killing people to maybe see, oh, when he's not killing people, he's totally bland. But when he's killing people, this is what he looks like. Mm. But they didn't didn't do that. I think that might be purposeful for it to remain within the confines of saying, oh, we are as historically accurate as we can be. Because there's no categoric proof, is there, that he did carry out a lot of these murders so maybe that was why but i don't understand where you're coming from completely jenna coleman's wardrobe i am not a fashion enthusiast in the slightest but i 
can't express how much I paid attention to her wardrobe within this program. And I loved everything that she wore. That is a weird thing for me to say, but I really noticed it. So, <laughs> but did you notice? I thought it was like a really subtle dig against the French when, you know, when Jenna Coleman dis- discovers that her pictures in the paper and some French guy just full on like body slams into her but just yeah. carries on walking, no apology or anything. I thought they were like, aren't the French rude? <laughs> yeah, that didn't happen in Thailand. No one bumped into them in Thailand. <laughs> but one second in France. Uh, I don't think that, by the way. And we've no French listeners, judging by the podcast stats, so we're safe. So overall, watch it, yeah? Yes, yeah. yeah. Agreed. Yes. Slither is serpent. <laughs> nice. From serpents to rodents. Real news? Yes. It's the real thing. It is now. Real, real news. News. I say rodents because we're talking Batman. The Batman is due out next year in cinemas, or is it? We'll see. Who knows? But... There's more news this week, which I believe came from your fine lips many episodes ago that you found on 4chan, the reputable news source 4chan. You hinted that Michael Keaton may play Batman in the near future, to which I scoffed at, didn't believe you, said, get your news sources sorted, Mr. Rothwell. Well, it turns out you were right, because this week DC have officially announced that whilst the Robert Pattinson universe is in the mix. There will also be a spin-off movie with Michael Keaton and Ben Affleck both playing Batman in the same film, and they're going to appear in The Flash. So not even a Batman film. What is this? What are they doing, James? This is mental. Full-on mental. So they tried Superman, Batman, and Wonder Woman. That was awful. Now they're saying, right, let's do Batman and Batman. Let's just try and get something to work. So is this some kind of Flash runs so quickly that he goes into a different universe and meets I th- I Keaton think... Batman and then meets Affleck Batman because it's a multiple universe thing. Like he'll meet them, he'll meet them, and then they'll just go away again. Yeah, it's, it's really not clear yet, but it feels like somebody's had this amazing, horrific idea and someone's gone, no one's going to... No one's gonna go with that, and they've gone. Well, it's all right. It's a. Well, it's not Batman then. Well, a Flash movie. We'll just do a Flash movie, but they're in it, so that if everyone doesn't like Flash, they can latch on to Batman. I just every time they film me with a bit of confidence and they do something right, they take ten steps back and do something weird and wacky, and I just don't know what they're thinking. And this, they're clutching at cinematic straws at this point. I'm just, I'm really worried for them. I feel like Batman is going to be driven into the ground and he's not going to be resurrected for another 30 years if they carry on going like this. And we'll long for the days of George Clooney as black and silver Batman. (laughs) He was the best, in my opinion. I didn't mean that. This sounds like it's made for YouTube speculation videos. Is Is it a good story or are you just trying to get hype from people going, Michael Keaton's back. Mm. Tell the story first, please. And then I'll care who's in it. James, what have you found in the world of news? I was served an article via my news aggregator app in The Guardian, published on January 6th. And this is the second Danish TV show I've talked about. So here we go. Headline, 
Denmark launches children's TV show about man with giant penis. Critics condemn idea of animated series about a man who cannot control his penis, but others have backed it. Have you heard this is real? Have you heard about this? Oh, no, I haven't. John Dillamond, Dilla is slang for penis in Danish. John <laughs> Dillamond has an extraordinary penis. So extraordinary, in fact, that it can perform rescue operations, etch murals, hoist a flag, and even steal ice cream from children. The Danish <laughs> equivalent of the BBC, DR, has a new animated series aimed at four to eight-year-olds about John Dillamond, the man with the world's longest penis who overcomes hardships and challenges with his record-breaking genitals. <sighs> hardships. Oh. And then the article goes on to talk about the debate that it's provoked, including a quote from someone saying, is this really the message that we want to send to children while we're in the middle of a huge hashtag Me Too wave? I I don't know how to respond to this news other than somebody's on drugs. This this is crazy. This is more crazy than the Batman news, and I thought that was going to top everything. Wow. So is, is this in production now, or is it this just... This exists already, and I, in this article in The Guardian, there is a link to the DR website, and you can watch these episodes. You can watch them. Each one's five minutes. I have watched one, and it is as described... He can extend it out of his pants. It's it's covered. It's it's more like a, a red and white striped snake that, that comes out. So he, he goes walking some dogs, but he holds the, the leashes with his penis. Right. So when it's exposed, his boxers acts as a expandable sheath, does it? That's right. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah. Oh, dear Lord. Okay. I'm going to have to watch this. I'm going to have yeah. to watch this. Watch it, watch it. Yeah, and you can watch, it seems like you can watch all the episodes on this um, Danish TV. Sorry. I'll the... give you a quote in defence of it, sorry. Um, From you. Yeah. Um, also in the article, a clinical psychologist who works with families and children has defended the show. She says, and I'm quoting here, the show depicts a man who is impulsive and not always in control, who makes mistakes, like kids do. But crucially... Dillamond always makes it right. He takes responsibility for his actions. When a woman in the show tells him that he should keep his penis in his pants, for instance, he listens, which is nice. He is accountable. <laughs> oh, you've ruined me. Right. Well, I'm going to watch that this evening. Thank you. DR themselves responded to the criticism by saying it could just as easily have made a programme about a woman with no control over her vagina. It could, but it shouldn't. That's the point. Oh. Right. Well, that's that's obviously a massive, massive difference in opinion, which leads us on to conflicts of interest. What are you talking about, yeah? I very much disagree Shut with up, that. Yeah. You do not have good opinions. What an idiot. I hate everything. You can't even either. speak. Nothing you say makes sense. Conflicts of interest. So, in the ever-surrounding misery of 2021, we're looking back in the past, James. Nostalgiaville. We're going to revisit what are the most underrated films of the 1990s. Now, what are we classing as underrated, James? My underrated films are underrated in a few different ways. In terms of box office, 
So a film that did not do well at the box office, but I felt should have done better given that it's very good. And because it didn't do well at the box office, maybe it's been a bit neglected. That's one of my things. Another more obvious one that I'm sure you've got is it's got a low rating on something like Rotten Tomatoes and IMDb, an unfairly, unjustifiably, criminally low rating that we feel should be bigger. Yeah. Is that what you've gone with as well? Yeah, more or less. So I'm just, you know, making sure everyone knows the facts. There's a few things that constitutes underrated doesn't necessarily mean nobody's heard of it before. Do you know what I mean? Yes, that's right. So without further ado, what's what's your first pick for underrated film of the 90s? My first choice for underrated 90s film is Far and Away from 1992, starring Tom Cruise and Nicole Kidman. It's about a young Irish couple who flee to the States, the United States of America, but subsequently struggle to obtain land and prosper freely. This stumbled at the box office and Roger Ebert, he said, Far and Away is a movie that joins astonishing visual splendor with a story so simple-minded it seems intended for adolescents. It's depressing that such a lavish and expensive production starring an important actor like Tom Cruise, he doesn't mention Nicole Kidman, sexist, could be devoted to such a shallow story. Rotten Tomatoes, 50% critic score, 62% 62% audience, IMDb 6.6. This seems to be a film that is is forgotten. It's lost time. It's directed by Ron Howard. The score is John Williams, Tom Cruise and Nicole Kidman. It's epic, but it seems like no one ever mentions it. And I'm guessing you haven't seen it. And I think we only found it because we were binging all the Tom Cruise films. It's an epic film. There's sweeping shots of these real landscapes. Late 19th century America is nicely recreated. Tom Cruise does some boxing. Yes, it's a simple story, but it's a good, hopeful, positive story about two people chasing a dream. And the end sequence is a sequence that I'm surprised is not more famous. It's about the land run that took place in Oklahoma in 1893. And there's real horses and carts all in these epic sweeping shots like Lawrence of Arabia, the kind of thing that wouldn't get made today. The land run, by the way, was a real event, a real type of event that happened where there was so much land in America that they literally just gave it away, as I understand. You just had flags planted that represented a number of acres. And if you took the flag, that is your land, and then you can make a homestead there. So I really enjoyed it. I've watched it twice in the past few years it's an uplifting epic story with tom cruise and nicole kidman who were always good to see separately all together just to clarify so that was a recent revelation to you you've not got any sense of nostalgia for it you've just watched it as part of our which was tom cruise's best decades and thought oh my god why do people not know about this or did you see i watched it i watched it before the tom cruise best decade discussion Ah, i watched it a few years ago and i've watched it again at least once since but only a few, so it obviously holds up well, it sounds like. Yeah, yeah. And I did watch the trailer today just to refresh my memory and be sure. And the trailer does show almost the whole film. <laughs> okay. Even one of the final shots from the Land Run epic scene. Brilliant. More fuel to the fire of our, our previous conflicts of interest. Don't watch trailers. They ruin everything. Very good. Daniel, in the words of Al Pacino in 1995's Heat, 
What do you got? <laughs> I hope that's not a a lead into the fact that you've picked eight. You've given the game away, but no, it's well, not. Oh, good, 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 good. I'm gonna pick something that I've already covered before, so I'm not gonna go over it in massive detail. Stir of Echoes from 1999, starring Kevin Bacon. So, as I said, I've mentioned it before on this podcast because I revisited it about six months back. But just to refresh your memory, it's a supernatural thriller starring Kevin Bacon. His wife's friend is a bit of a mystic Meg type, and she subjects him to undergo some hypnosis. And following this, he's haunted by visions of a girl, which leads him into the mystery of what does she want? What's happened to her? How do I uncover her tragic end? And I said it at the point we reviewed it last time. This fell into a very unfortunate shadow in that The Sixth Sense was released in the same year and just it went completely under the radar. Everyone forgot about it. But in my opinion, it's an equally effective horror film. And in fact, I, I actually preferred this over the Sixth Sense. It just does not get enough love. And I think Kevin Bacon is brilliant in it. And I think more people should watch it. So that's my first pick, Stir of Echoes. Sorry for recycling content. I'm sorry to say that I still have not seen that. I might be overselling it. I just really personally liked it. It might not be everyone's cup of tea, but um, do give it a go. Let me know if I've gone a bit overboard there. James, pick number two. What is it for you? I think you might agree with this one. It's 1995's Batman Forever. Oh, nice. Nice. You may remember that I also picked Batman Returns as my favourite Christmas film. So Batman Forever... 39% 39% Rotten Tomatoes, 5.4 IMDb rating. I'm putting this forward as underrated because I think it's unfairly associated very closely with the Batman and Robin disaster. And it's forgotten alongside that as one of Joel Schumacher's pieces of crap that is nothing compared to the greatness of the Tim Burton films. Now, I'm not saying it's the best Batman film, I'm not even saying that Val Kilmer is the best Batman, but it's got very committed performances from Jim Carrey and Tommy Lee Jones, two great actors. Nicole Kidman is in there, which I always forget before I actually go and look up Batman Forever, and she's good in it. Yes, it is camp, but it seems that now, with things like Wonder Woman in 1984 and Guardians of the Galaxy, bright colours are a good thing, and they're fashionable again. So can we go back and watch Batman Forever and accept the campness and the bright colours? We were nine when this came out, and I loved it. I'm sure you loved it as well. If you're around the same age as us, go back and watch the trailer, and you will be filled with joy and nostalgia at seeing the action scenes, Val Kilmer's upgraded silver bat suit, the bat boat, Jim Carrey's costume, Tommy Lee Jones's purple face, as a fun action film, which is what it's set out to be. I think it totally works. I think people of our time do hold a secret love for this film, and the thirty-nine percent Rotten Tomatoes doesn't represent what I believe is a secret love for this film that exists amongst a certain generation. I'm extremely jealous that you've picked that and that it didn't come to mind for me because you're right, it's one of my all-time nostalgic favourite films of the 90s. 
um, which weirdly I didn't remember, um, which is even worse because I started watching this the other week just to relive the past. My partner, to be quite honest, was like, what is this? Oh, my God, don't make me watch this. But it's so weird how much it sticks with you. But similar to what we said about Batman Returns, there's so many memorable moments, like from the neon colour aesthetic that's going on or just the batshit crazy, forgive the pun, performances, as you referenced, from Jim Carrey and Tommy Lee Jones. It's just such a fun film, isn't it? It is. It's very fun. And the U2 and Seal songs that are in it are good songs. Good 90 songs that appear in it. Yeah. There's a lot of good elements in there to enjoy, even though the story's wacky. Yeah, completely agreed. Didn't know, and I want to dig into it in more detail at some point, but did you know that uh, Tommy Lee Jones and Jim Carrey absolutely hated each other's guts? Yes, I remember reading something about this. Yeah. A while ago. Just quite strong personalities that clashed, I would imagine. Fine pick. Good one. Daniel, what's your next underrated 90s movie? This will not come as a surprise to you, I don't think, James. You you would have seen this come in. But it is Very Bad Things from 1998. And some people out there might be saying, what the hell is Very Bad Things? I've never heard of it. That's why I'm saying it's underrated. Seek it out. Watch it. Caveat, don't think it's available anywhere. Looks it up so that I could say, oh, and if you want to check it out, watch it here. You can't find it on Amazon Prime Video, so I don't know how you're going to watch this. But if you can get hold of it, it is a film starring John Favreau and Cameron Diaz. John Favreau, obviously, is most famous these days for being behind the camera and kickstarting the Marvel Cinematic Universe with Iron Man. He's not known for his acting credits, but he's, he's you know, more than sufficient in this. This is the blackest of dark comedies I think you're likely to find. It's about John Favreau and a bunch of his mates who go on a stag do to Las Vegas. And as is customary, apparently, they hire a stripper. One of his friends accidentally kills the stripper in the bathroom. Again, customary. It happens. They try and cover up the crime. They return home. And some of them deal with keeping it a secret pretty well. Others just completely crumble under the guilt and the pressure, and then the film descends into chaos from that point onwards. You basically see the lives of every person involved just utterly fall apart in spectacular fashion. It's got a really good surrounding cast. Christian Slater's in this as the morally dubious friend. He's the more sleazy of all the characters in this. Jeremy Piven, who is sleazy in real life, if news reports it to be believed he's also in here and one of the robbers from home alone i forget his name i should have wrote that down i apologize but there's some really memorable lines in this it's pretty non-politically correct if i remember rightly there's some quite anti-semitic comments throughout the whole thing i think they're meant quite tongue-in-cheek i don't think they're supposed to be taken seriously but that again might be problematic so i do wonder how it holds out and I rinsed this in my teenage years. I don't know if you recall just how obsessed I was with this film, but anybody I could get to watch this, I forced it upon them relentlessly, including yourself, probably. Um, But yeah, has one of the most crazy, again, probably not PC endings that I've seen in a film in recent memory, and I 
I just love this film still. I've not seen it for a good few years, but it holds a special place in my heart. I do remember very well you encouraging us to watch this. And I'm, I, now that you've described it, I mean, I do, I do remember it. I do obviously remember the opening scene, the impalement scene, impaled in more ways than one in the, in the hotel bathroom. 41% on Rotten Tomatoes seems a bit unfair. Would you say that this is a kind of early version of The Hangover with a bunch of guys taking things too far and then they spend the rest of the film trying to piece their heads together? Yes. I weirdly didn't even draw that comparison, but it's completely that. But this has a lot more of a darker tone to it. The laughs are all quite... You, you feel guilty for laughing for a lot of what transpires in the film. It's not as in-your-face comedy as The Hangover is. Um, as I say, a lot darker. But yeah, that's, that's a fair comparison. Did you like it, by the way? I did like it. I did like it. Also directed by Peter Berg, who's since gone on to make some pretty big films. I think he divides audiences quite frequently, but he's done quite a lot of Mark Wahlberg films about real life disasters such as Deep Deep Water Horizon. Deep Water Horizon, that's the one. And the one about the Boston bombings. God, do your bloody research acting. That one and Lone Survivor. Anyway, it's got quite an interesting back catalogue. So Yeah. And he directed Hancock, which again was a sort of dark comedy superhero film. Never seen Hancock. Worth a watch. It's okay. It's okay. It's okay. I didn't completely regret watching it in 2008. James, anything else? From 1997. Yes, I'm going in chronological order. Gattaca, starring Ethan Hawke, Jude Law, and Uma Thurman, which is about a genetically inferior man who assumes the identity of a superior one in order to pursue his lifelong dream of space travel. 82% Rotten Tomatoes, 7.8 IMDb. You may be wondering, why are you talking about this? It's not underrated. You're not credible. You're an idiot. As I said at the start, the reason I bring this up is because off a $36 million budget, it got $12.5 million at the box office. I've never seen this available for free on streaming services. Everyone that's seen it, including you, I think, because you recommended it to me, everyone that's seen it thinks it's brilliant because it's such a prescient film about genetic manipulation. But I just don't think it's very well-known, even though Ethan Hawke, Jude Law, and Uma Thurman are famous movie stars. They're not at that absolute top Tom Cruise, Brad Pitt level where every film that they've made is sort of known and seen. I think more people should see it and know about it. It's a very interesting study in the ethical danger of genetic manipulation, designer children, biological determinism. It's got a really interesting aesthetic that's sort of futuristic noir with sleek offices combined with classic cars. Very memorable film that you recommended to me. So thank you. And when we talked about underrated 90s films, this was the first film that popped into my head. So I feel obliged to bring it up. And so you should. I am very happy that you brought that up because that's, yeah, Gattaca has not been seen by enough people. And many years since I've seen it, but I feel like 
from my memory of it, I think it would hold up pretty well in its depiction of the future. It's it's not in your face, over the top, stylistic. Oh, look at what the future is. It is quite stripped back. That's right, and there's not a lot of CGI in it, so it's not like it would look very dated either. It's got quite a poignant emotional ending as well, which was nice. Yes, maybe the only film that I can think of, if you can think of another one, please email us in the at gmail.com or comment on Instagram. I think it's the only film where the climax is a one-to-one ocean swimming race. No, can't think of another one. But as James said, write in if one does spring to mind. I'm going to throw a last one in. Strange Days, 1995. I'd forgotten all about this film. And then I was just, you know, again, having a bit of a look online. What was out in the 90s? What has just escaped from my ever-dwindling memory? And yeah, Strange Days. I forgot how good this was. Did you ever watch this? Not going to lie, I've never heard of it. All right, okay. It's set in a dystopian future, which was quite weird because I think it was, as I said, 1995, but it was set in the year 2000. And it's a bit of a mishmash between The Matrix and, I want to say, Possessor. I don't know. It's It's been a long time since I've seen it, but as a sci-fi film, I remember that I probably only watched it about eight years ago for the first time. And I was very pleasantly surprised by it. I thought the themes held up quite well. And to give a bit of a gravitas behind the whole thing, it's directed by Catherine Bigelow, who went on to Oscar glory, and the screenplay is by James Cameron. So you know you're in safe hands. Um, and Ralph Ralph Fiennes, Juliette Lewis, and Angela Bassett star. So quite strong talent involved. Yeah, worth a watch. Okay, I'll have a look for that one. I think we've mentioned some pretty pretty damn good films there. Some decent recommendations. Yeah, should make for a good Instagram post. <laughs> Indeed. That's your work. That's on you, just so you know. I'll action that. So, to summarise, should we do a bit of a recap, James? So your list was? 1992's Far Away with Tom Cruise. 1995, Batman Forever. And 1997's Gattaca with Ethan Hawke, Jude Law, and Uma Thurman. What were yours, Daniel? We had Stir of Echoes from 1999, starring Kevin Bacon. Everyone loves a bit of bacon. We then had 1998's Very Bad Things. So if you're in for, you're up for a dark comedy, go with that one. And then last mention for forgotten sci-fi thriller Strange Days from 1995. From the past to the present, James... Time for the main review? Yes. Hello, I'd like to order an opinion, please. This film is new, fresh point of view. Hold me sit back, this is a fact. We in the aisles, here are some aisles. Thoughts in sync, tell you what to think. I'll listen to you, but please don't rap again. This week's main review is Wolf Walkers. Wolf. Wolf, hunt them far and yonder. The forest is brimming with wolves. It's my job to hunt them down, not yours. But we could hunt them together. Wolves, bears, dragons even. (laughs) (laughs) 
and them wolf walkers. Wolf walkers? The ones that can talk to wolves with some wild magic. They can come out now. We can smell ya, you stick. You're a wolf walker. You're a wolf when you sleep. A girl when you're awake. <laughs> Robin, something's happened to me. Yeah, I can see that. Flipping great. An Englishman, an Irishman, and a wolf walk into a bar. Irishman says to the Englishman, "All right, mate. Do you think you could uh, you could help us out with this wolf infestation that we're having at the minute, attacking our village?" Wolf says, I "Can hear what you're saying, you know." I'm right here. Englishman says, Do you just hear that then? It's a talking wolf. And the Irishman said, Yeah, it's because he's a wolf walker. To which the Englishman said, More like a wolf talker. <laughs> yeah, really struggled this week. Or, as IMDb would say, a young apprentice hunter and her father journey to Ireland to help wipe out the last wolf pack, but everything changes when she befriends a free-spirited girl from a mysterious tribe rumoured to transform into wolves at night. Daniel, what did you think of Wolfwalkers? Well, one thing that I am extremely thankful to this podcast for is watching things I wouldn't ordinarily watch, and I would never, ever choose to watch this. I rarely watch any form of animation. And I can't say that I've ever watched any production by this animation studio cartoon saloon before. So this was an interesting venture. So general thoughts. For a family film, it's surprisingly serious in many aspects. There are smiles to be had, full show, but it's not your typical light-hearted fare. I think the story and the time period it's set in lends itself to a rather repressed or subdued form of storytelling you can feel that as well in the animation i think because it's vibrant and colorful but it's also rough around the edges it's not as crisp as you would find from the likes of disney i am not an animation expert so take my words with a pinch of salt i do think that's purposeful design choice it's definitely it definitely gives it its own style and visual identity and to further that point this story takes place between two central locations that being the city or the town and the woods and what struck me was how distinctly different both places feel i mean they are by the nature different but the city feels quite devoid of color and all the shapes are quite harsh that the people inhabit whereas in the woods it's really colorful and it's full of these like swirly softer images they were so well realized and I felt that they both had their own type of atmosphere to them as well. And I really do think that the music in this film helps to solidify that feeling too. From memory, you get a much heavier dramatic score in the city compared to this almost enchanted mythical vibe in the woods. And I really noticed the score in this in, in a good way. I liked it so much that I've added it to my library on Spotify. So that's, yeah, liked it. The voice animation is really good, and I'm pleased that they went with some accents that people could deem as inaccessible, people that sound like me, <laughs> uh, for example. But, you know, they're not speaking the Queen's English. The two young girls in particular who voice Robin and Mev, 
I thought they were brilliant and brought some real emotion to the roles. I don't want to keep repeating myself because I said this in last week's episode about soul, but it's a timely message once again for the age that we live in because you get a lot of parallels of this ongoing unrest between different cultures and species, I suppose you could say, whether it's the English descending on the Irish village and the locals living in fear of them or the wolves and their plight against the woods being destroyed by the Irish villagers and also against being hunted by the humans. It's like a vicious circle of power struggles and injustice. And what I loved about the film is it doesn't explicitly state it, although it is heavily implied, but it's a film about coexistence, compromising and not living in fear of the unknown. And I really appreciate that message to it. That was my thoughts. James, what about yours? I'm so happy that I watched this this week after some okay TV offerings. I want to talk about the animation first. I loved it. Almost every frame is a work of art in itself that you could buy and hang up. They aren't just animating the characters across backgrounds. Every shot has deliberate framing and warping of the surroundings. Like near the beginning when Robin is often framed by a circular background to emphasise her and sometimes the centre behind the characters is white and the forest just surrounds them. It's all so deliberate and so carefully crafted. The town, as you've said, is drawn with geometric shapes, squares and triangles. It's all grey and black, but the forest is expressive and, and bright. And it doesn't even look real. It's just the idea of a forest and it has such an atmosphere to it. The characters are so expressive. Not a moment is wasted in showing what they're feeling in each moment. It tells the story so well. When it's at the scullery, Robin wears a square hat. When she's in the forest, her hair is flowing and always in motion. Everything that's on the screen is all deliberate and helps tell the story i don't have the artistic vocabulary to explain but the perspective is not accurate either i'm sure you noticed this as well when the town is in the distance the town is there as though it's being viewed from above and not from the side it's like an inception type thing but it's very deliberate like style in perspective and then when they're in the kitchen the kitchen is viewed from above but the characters are moving around as though they're being viewed from the side it's so stylized but it all works so well and again it all appears as though these are works of art in motion in each frame all of it every second the music the celtic inspired music is brilliant this has replaced the soul soundtrack for me from last week already as my quiet listening material the interludes with songs work really well this song with aurora her remake of the Running With Wolves song. That was brilliant. Properly enchanting and magical. More so than any live Disney remake that has been made. The voice acting that includes Sean Bean doing his real Northern accent, as you said, is superb. The energy that comes through, all the performances, everyone is so totally committed. The story is simple. Like you say, it has two locations, maybe four main characters. But it really is for all ages, unlike Soul and some other Disney stuff where some of it is just adults. This is the adult joke. And now here's the action scene for the children. It's not like that. All of it is for all ages. It's a moving, profound, fun, emotional 
story throughout the whole runtime. I did find it unpredictable. I really didn't know what was going to happen. And I was never bored. Not a moment or scene is wasted. It flows so well. Have you seen Princess Mononoke? No, I've not, actually. It's a classic Studio Ghibli um, Japanese anime. And I've seen one comment or review somewhere that said that Cartoon Saloon are the next Studio Ghibli, like they're the inheritors to this kind of storytelling. And I was watching this with a, a Japanese woman and she was saying, well, this is a bit like Princess Mononoke. That scene is the same as Princess Mononoke. That character is the same as Princess Mononoke. And it is similar. So if you like Princess Mononoke, just say that title for the 10th time. If you like Princess Mononoke, watch this as well. It's not similar in a way that it's a ripoff. It's just thematically similar. And it's got wolves in it. It's set in the 17th century in Ireland. And it features the occupying English force trying to civilise the land but there's no actual mention of politics in the script. The Lord Protector does not wear a red cap that says, make Ireland great again. It resists the temptation to do that. The characters are the characters in the story. They're not avatars for a debate about colonialism. But that discussion, like you've said, it is there. The profound messages and the themes, it is there and it's very accessible, as is the message about environmentalism. I've never seen Wolf said so many times in a film, but I did really, really enjoy it. Very good. I keep making a repeated mistake, by the way, and consuming these films very shortly before we record. And I do think it is important that I change that habit because I think for films like this, you need it to bed in. You need to absorb it and to fully understand just what you've seen i think even you talking about it has made me realize i'm not saying i didn't recognize there was a lot to this film because I, I can completely appreciate why somebody would hold this in such high regard but i don't think currently given that i saw it a few hours ago that i've let it affect me in the way that it has you but it's actually just got me a bit geared up for, for giving this another go because it is, is a very 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 good film so thank you for sharing your thoughts yeah Worthy of the 99%, 99% Rotten Tomatoes rating that it's got. Is it? Wow. Some Something that you said as well, which I'd just like to piggyback onto around it being a family film and, and Soul in some ways not really being that accessible to children in the way that it portrays its themes. I do think that regardless of whether you're on board for that sort of thematic message i think you will as a child you would still you'd still find this visually interesting even if you weren't getting that bit of it i will say that unlike soul where i think you could lose interest because it's obviously just too much in a lot of scenes like our real world and kids get bored of the real world pretty quickly but this is a whole different thing looks completely different yeah and i can't wait for disney to take all the life soul, heart and energy out of it and do a live action remake <laughs> You recommended Soul, don't be so down on Disney. Uh, yeah I did, well yeah not the live, not, not Mulan, that's a callback to Mulan. Oh of course of course. Daniel would you recommend Wolf Walkers? Yes I definitely would I would say we've done two family films in the last two weeks and I think this is the better one, yeah you James would you recommend Wolf Walkers? Yes, I agree that it is the better of the two family films that we've done. I would recommend it wholeheartedly 
And Apple TV have done it again. They're keeping the 100% success rate for films reviewed on this podcast. Oh, yeah. Mm. Interesting platform for it to sit on, do you not think? Yeah, you mean because it's not a big, eye-catching, subscriber-attracting film? Yeah, I mean, it, it's done very well, hasn't it, this film, critically, but I very much doubt that it's found much of an audience, given the number of subscribers to Apple TV. I think I think if this was to land on Netflix or Amazon Prime, you'd hear a lot more noise about it. And don't get me wrong, there's been a lot of good things said about it, but I just feel like rather than it being critics speaking about it, you'd have more of a general, you know, civilian conversation about it, I suppose I'm saying. Yeah. Well, maybe we'll change that with this. One can only hope. Spoilers? Yes. Bruce Willis. Real name is Tyler Durden. Sank at the end. Oh, thanks a lot. Spoilers. So I, did, I didn't mention it in the main review because I wanted to avoid spoilers, but James, it's a body swap film again. We've done it again. Yeah, we can't get away from this, this theme. <laughs> oh, we can't. But felt relevant. I mean, it, it is it's central to the plot. It's, so it's the plot. completely relevant. <laughs> so it worked here. And I didn't feel that sense of body swap fatigue that we discussed with Soul because I understood that it was pivotal to the story that we're telling. So it was fine. But yet again, I was a bit like, not body swap next week, please. Because I didn't know that was the case. I hadn't read a lot about this film beforehand. But to give some background to that for people who sometimes do, you're listening to spoilers, you know nothing about the film. Our heroine, Robin, she's bitten by a wolf. And later that day, as she drifts off into the world of slumber, she awakens as a wolf and therefore becomes, title of the film, Wolf Walker. So, yeah, did you latch on to this? I hope so. And you probably did because you're very, very keen on the film. So what did you think of it overall? I did latch on to it. I knew so little about the film going on that I didn't even know this was going to be the, the main plot that she becomes a wolf walker and that is how she gains her understanding of what goes on in the forest world what surprised me even more was that sean bean's character ends the film as as a wolf walker yeah i didn't see that coming and it was a neat way i think as well of having this obviously she's been ignored and told to shut up little girl throughout the entire film and that was a nice moment of realization because i thought it's coming he is going to slowly accept that She's not a daft little girl. She has a point to make, and maybe you should listen, mate. Uh, but that was a nice way of putting that across, I think. Works yeah, well. the extent to which Sean Bean's character doesn't listen was frustrating, Frustrate, but frustrating in a way that I was invested in the story. I really wanted him to, to listen to Robin. I thought she should listen a bit more as well, because I know that had she listened, we wouldn't have much of a film. But, oh, my word, this little girl has no respect for anybody and especially not a father she's the most disobedient little shit i've seen in recent cinema she she has good intentions but just stop it go to sleep shut your mouth and and do one at least one day at work you know before you go off yeah be reasonable that being said sean bean's character is utterly useless he (laughs) claims to be a hunter, a professional hunter of wolves. He does not kill a single wolf in this film. 
for all his crossbow shots, he only makes one successful crossbow shot. And if it's it's of a giant wolf that is sitting still <laughs> at close range, that is his only successful hit in the whole film. None of his traps work. He sets traps and comes back and says, oh, my traps have been triggered. And that's it. That's his only... He's totally useless. And, and his daughter just doesn't listen to him. But he doesn't listen to her either. So he's, he's a bad communicator. He just cuts off Robin before she gets to explain this thing and watching him get bossed around by the Lord Protector, I was I was upset for him by the end. But then that made it so triumphant when he gets bitten by the mother wolf and he has his moment, you know, he has his moment to become a wolf and, and kill the Lord Protector. But yeah, he's he's totally useless. Did you pick up on that as well? I did, but I had an element of sympathy for him because these aren't your everyday wolves, James, or at least that's what I thought. These are a, a different breed, a super intelligent kind of animal that he's not used to hunting. That's how I excused his absolute ineptness as a human being. These are Marks and Spencer wolves. <laughs> <laughs> Indeed. Another thing that was useless, did you notice the, the gate is this um, like grid? style gate when robin is a wolf she's able to slip through it and when she's not a wolf she can slip through it so the gate is useless a wolf sized animal can get through the gate that is there to keep out the wolf threat so that's a huge plot hole huge plot hole wolf walkers four out of ten wouldn't recommend didn't pick up on that but you you could have a calling in life james architecture security who knows <laughs> 18th century security. Yeah. <laughs> Something that was missing that didn't detract from the story, but I did think, hmm, what about that? There's no follow-up on whether the townspeople will continue to cut down the forest. So at the end of the film, Sean Bean, Robin, and the mother-daughter, wolves, they ride off in a cart. They're a happy nuclear family, and they leave the worries of the town behind and there's no follow-up on what happens to the townspeople. Do they continue to cut down the forest? The normal wolves are left to fend for themselves, I presume. Is there some kind of compromise? Is there some kind of understanding that is reached? Do the townspeople do some calculations on what is a sustainable way to cut down these trees? That is left behind. Again, it's not a negative, but I did wonder, you know why it was missed completely. Did you notice that? I didn't notice it because I wasn't invested in that side of the story, if I'm honest. I think I think I was hooked on the father-daughter dynamic and also the mother-daughter dynamic with Miv and her wolf mother. I didn't really care about the townsfolk. Didn't even give them a second thought. I think that might have wrapped it up in a nice little bow for anyone who did care, such as yourself, but no, did, didn't miss it personally. Didn't they okay. burn the woods down? Or did it get yes. restored by the wonder of magic? No, they burned it down and all the English, well, the English soldiers that went into the forest, they were all set on fire and burned alive. So maybe what actually happens is that all the English soldiers die and the townsfolk just live a more sustainable life without the pressure on increasing agricultural production that was coming from the English occupiers. Yeah, I mean, I say I didn't miss it, but it wouldn't have been a massive effort to just throw in a oh, look at all the townspeople being joyous now. That would have just settled that that issue. But, oh, well, never mind. Very good. 
So not the film that we anticipated watching this week, but can't say I'm regretting that. I, I think that was a worthwhile thing to put on our watch list for 2021. We've started off pretty positively so far, haven't we? We have. That might all change next week when we, as UK-based movie consumers, get to watch Wonder Woman 1984. The moment has arrived, finally. It's almost definitely not going to be worth it. I hope to be proved wrong. That's just me being cynical. So remember, there's a popular phrase. I don't, I don't know if it is, actually, but don't throw yourself to the wolves. Well, this film has taught me that sometimes maybe you should and you'll rematerialize as the very thing that bit you. See you next week. It's been profound. Bye. Bye. Bye.